Well, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tonight. We're not going to actually get very far in the text this evening, but I want to uh, read the first 11 verses of this chapter. So 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 11. Let's go ahead and stand and uh, read it together. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healings, healing by the same, the one Spirit, and to another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. You've given us specific instruction concerning uh, the Christian life, how uh, the Christian life is to operate and how the church is to function. And so, Lord, we don't have to guess about these things. And we thank you that uh, not only have you given your church, your body, uh, spiritual gifts, but uh, you have also given us the energy to, by which they function, and you have given us the instructions in, as to how they're to operate in the church. And so, Lord, we pray that as we go through this, that we would uh, do it carefully, that we would rightly divide your word, that we would uh, diligently understand uh, what you have instructed us here so that we might honor you and so that we can be the church that uh, operates according to your plan. So, Lord, again, tonight we ask that you would be with us and be our teacher and help us to uh, understand uh, your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we come to 1 Corinthians 12 and the very important topic of spiritual gifts. And I just want to say that uh, we're going to take a long time to go through spiritual gifts. So the three chapters, chapter 12, 13, and 14, and, and then I'm going to take a, kind of a cruise for about eight weeks talking about the gift of tongues. So we're going to walk very carefully through this. So if I don't answer all your questions tonight, know that I'm going to get to it. Uh, and this probably is going to raise more questions than we're going to answer tonight. But as critical as spiritual gifts are to the body of Christ, they, as you know, have been very controversial. 
in the church. And perhaps nothing has been more abused and misunderstood in evangelical Christianity than this whole arena of spiritual gifts. It is very important that we rightly divide God's word on this subject. And as I said, we're going to go very carefully through it. Why is this so important in the church? Because other than the divine energy of God himself, there is nothing that is needed more than for believers to be using their spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. You see, the church is not just a human organization. It is a living, eternal organism. It is a living organism. It is the very body of Christ, the manifestation of Christ in the world. And God has given his church spiritual gifts as a way of building up his body and accomplishing his purposes in the world. And that is why it is so crucial for us to understand properly spiritual gifts. That's also why Satan so often seeks to counterfeit the spiritual gifts. Now, some of the questions that we're going to be dealing with over the next several weeks as we go through chapters 12, 13, and 14 are these. What are spiritual gifts? How many are there? Are they important? How do you get them? Can I seek certain gifts? What are the purposes of the gifts? What about the miraculous gifts? Are they still for today? Which gifts have ceased, if any, and which ones are still in operation? Can the gifts be counterfeited? And if so, how does that happen, and how do we avoid that? What is the most important gift of all? And many other questions that we're going to be raising and then answering over a number of weeks. Now, it is important for us to keep the context in mind as we go through this. An understanding of the situation in the Corinthian church of that day is basic to an understanding of the whole picture regarding spiritual gifts. We have to know what Paul said, and we have to know what was meant by that in the times in which it was said, if we're going to get a proper interpretation of these controversial passages. And as I have stated over and over again in our study so far of 1 Corinthians, the problem at Corinth was that they were dragging the world into the church. They were very immature and they were um, carnal-minded. And so they were taking that which was in the world and they were bringing it into the church. And that is exactly what they did in this area as well. Just as the Corinthians had perverted everything else in their assembly... So they were perverting the use of the spiritual gifts as well. 
1 Corinthians 1, 7 says, you are not lacking in any gift. Paul had told them they weren't lacking in any spiritual gift. They had everything they needed. The problem was that it was not that they didn't have all the gifts. The problem was they were abusing them. They were not using them properly. And so Paul here says they lacked nothing. They had all the fullness of all the gifts. Yet in spite of that, with all the knowledge that they should have had, and with all the gifts available to them, they were ignorant of how these gifts should be functioning, especially the gift of languages, which is called tongues in our day and time, but the biblical word is languages. They were very confused about this one in particular. Now, we're going to deal very specifically with the gift of tongues when we get to chapter 13. But what the Corinthian believers were doing was to confuse the proper manifestation of the Holy Spirit with the ecstatic and even bizarre activity of the pagan religions of their day. In fact, what they were doing was very similar to what we see today in the modern charismatic movement. These are the very same kinds of abuses that Paul was seeking to correct in the Corinthian assembly. Now, an example of the problem in Corinth was that when someone would stand up in the congregation and give an utterance of some kind whether it was a language, a prophecy, or an interpretation, the wilder it got, the more miraculous and godly supposedly it was. And so they were, they were trying to uh, be sensational, and they were trying to outdo one another. And so you had people standing up and saying all kinds of outlandish things and and supposedly, everybody thought, wow, look how spiritual that is. And yet Paul's saying, this is an abuse. And we're going to see that as we go through. It is the very same in the charismatic church today. But we need to remember that Paul wrote these three chapters as a corrective to that sort of thing. This is a corrective. We always need to remember that about the book of 1 Corinthians. But in Corinth, as in the charismatic church today, the more bizarre and ecstatic an experience was, the more spiritual they deemed it to be. They were valuing wild and far-out experiences over everything else, including doctrine. And I believe that this carnal tendency was a remnant of the days in the pagan religions before they became believers in Christ. This was a carryover for when they were involved in the idolatrous, ecstatic utterances of the pagan priests in the temples that surrounded Corinth. You see, this... 
ecstatic utterance that worked itself into an emotional frenzy was a common practice in the pagan temples of that day. In fact, it was especially prominent in the temple of Aphrodite right there on the Acropolis at Corinth. And the practice of ecstatic speech goes back to the mystery religions that were being practiced in those pagan temples in that region. In fact, when these pagan practices began to infiltrate the church, it was easy then for the Corinthian believers in their immature and carnal state to confuse those pagan practices with the true gifts of the Spirit. Or the other way around, they confused um, what they thought was true gifts of the Spirit uh, with being pagan practices. And just like they had done with everything else, they just carried these pagan practices right into the church. And the result was the perversion of the true spiritual gifts. Now, the mystery religions, which we see in its final form when we study Revelation in mystery Babylon the religion of the Antichrist. But the mystery religions are the origin of all false religious systems in the world today. The mystery religions began, as you probably know, at the Tower of Babel with a man named Nimrod and his wife, Semiramis. Semiramis was the first high priestess of the Tower of Babel religion. She founded what is known today as the mystery religions. And when God scattered the people over the face of the earth, they took these religions with them. And you may remember that God not only scattered them, but he also at the same time confused their languages. And so Semiramis received a number of different names Because different cultures have different languages. And that means many different pronunciations of who she is. And so in Assyria, she's called Ishtar. In Phoenicia, her name is Ashtoreth. In Egypt, she's called Isis. In Greece, she was known as Aphrodite. And in Rome, she was called Venus. All of these are names for Semiramis. And Semiramis had a son whose name was Tammuz. In Phoenicia, he was called Baal. In Egypt, he was called Osiris. In Greece, he was known as Eros. And in Rome, he went by the sweet little name Cupid. It was believed that Tammuz was conceived by a sunbeam. And folks, this is nothing other than Satan's attempt to counterfeit and pervert the doctrine of the virgin birth. Supposedly, he had no earthly father. But all this is mythology. And not only were the mystery religions steeped in gross immorality and perversion. But there was 
one characteristic about the mystery religions that found its way into Greece, and that was the practice known as ecstasy. Ecstasy. Today, we think of that as a drug, right? But in that day and time, it was practiced. Uh, it was a practice that centered around ecstatic speech. The word ecstasies in the Greek means to cultivate a magical, sensuous communication with the deity. In other words, they would do anything they could to get themselves worked into a semi-conscious, hallucinatory, hypnotic spell in order to have a sensual experience with some deity, and that would produce supposedly a tremendously euphoric feeling. This is what their religion was all about. This is what was going on in all the pagan temples. So in this way, they were assuming that they were becoming one with whatever deity they were worshiping. And we have, by the way, seen a revival of this thing today in Eastern religions. And I could go to a number of examples of of these same type of things and wild, bizarre kind of behavior connected with, uh, you know, various religion, Eastern religions. But let me just share with you a few quotes from a well-known historian who describes these mystery religions. And really, this is all this is introduction tonight. We haven't gotten into the text, as you've noticed. But we need to lay the background. We need to understand where all this is coming from. The historian writes this. He says, The mysties, the person seeking the experience was brought into a mystic, ineffable condition in which the normal functions of personality were in abeyance and the moral strivings which formed character virtually ceased or were relaxed while the emotional and intuitive were accentuated. Wow! Sounds like our day and time, doesn't it? Sounds like what everybody's chasing after. In other words, here is a situation in which a person enters into a condition where his personality becomes abnormal, where his normal moral compass is set aside, so he indulges in various forms of gross immorality. And where his brain goes into neutral and his emotions take over. This is ecstasy. This is where all this religion came from, pagan religion. And this is what they were carrying into the Corinthian church. The historian continues, these states were known as ecstasy and enthusiasm. Now, of course, enthusiasm in our modern society means something very different. We define enthusiasm as giving something your all, right? But that's not what it meant in the Greek culture. In the Greek, it referred to a state of euphoria induced on someone to make them semi-conscious. 
He goes on to say, both of these states might be induced by vigil and fasting, tense religious expectancy, whirling dances, physical stimuli, the contemplation of the sacred objects, the effects of stirring music, inhalation of fumes, I wonder what type, revivalistic contagion, such as happened in the Corinthian church, hallucination, suggestion, and all the other means belonging to the apparatus of the mysteries. You see, we think this just kind of came out of nowhere. It didn't. It has a historical foundation and background. In other words, this ecstatic experience was induced in a number of different ways. These were common methods in the pagan religious temples for producing this kind of euphoric experience. If you just, you know, have the music just right, or you have people whirling around dancing, or you, you know, you have... Um, you know, a contemplation of sacred objects, and we have intense religious passion, and all this, you put all this together, what do you have? The charismatic movement? No, you have ancient pagan religion. That's what you have. The historian wrote this, In ecstasy, the devotee was lifted above the level of his ordinary experience into an abnormal consciousness of an exhilarating condition in which the body ceased to be a hindrance to the soul. Ecstasy might be of a passive character, resembling a trance. Oh, we have that, don't we? People falling into trances, falling over. Or it might be an active, orgiastic character of excitation, resembling what Plato called the divine frenzy it could be either kind, be passive, be active. Now, all this goes back to the mystery religions and the worship of Baal. But the amazing thing is, we see it very much as part of the charismatic church today. You've seen it. You, you know what I'm talking about. You have people being slain in the spirit. Some are falling into trances. Others are holy rollers running up and down wildly in a frenzied state. In fact, in our day and time, we have other, you know, things that have accompanied this. People getting the holy hiccups. We've seen people barking like dogs. We've seen people supposedly drunk in the spirits. We've seen the mystical experience known as the fire tunnel, and a host of other wild and crazy manifestations that they claim are the workings of the Holy Spirit. But the bottom line is that these types of things create this euphoric feeling that people are flocking after. Christians who are caught up in this kind of deception, believe that they are now on track with God for the first time. They finally have their spiritual act together because they're having this experience. That's exactly what the Corinthians were saying. 
in essence, they were saying, this is great. You know, we're communing with the gods. We've never felt this way before. Surely this must be a God thing. Not necessarily. Listen, anytime someone says, hey, look what happened. It must be of the Spirit. They are assuming Satan does not counterfeit. Anytime someone in the charismatic movement, for example, says, hey, you can't deny this experience. Just ask them, can you say for certain this is of God? Could it also be of Satan? Could it be of Satan? Of course it could. How can you tell the difference? You can't sometimes. Satan is a master counterfeit. He is a master at deception. His counterfeits are very close to the real thing. That's why they are incredibly subtle and deceptive. But going back to the Corinthians, those two things, ecstasy and enthusiasm, made up the religious systems in which these Corinthians had lived and grown up. This is the culture they had come out of. When they became believers believers in Christ, they stayed the same. They didn't grow spiritually. They, they, they stayed spiritual infants, immature. Because as Paul has made clear, they were not spiritual but carnal. In other words, they were immature and fleshly or worldly. So what did they do? They just dragged these worldly practices into the church. And just as they had done with everything else, they hauled these pagan practices that they had grown up around right into the assembly of the church. What did they end up with? They ended up with a type of worship that was wild and frenzied and chaotic and confusing. In fact, it was so chaotic that Paul said if an unbeliever walked into one of their services, he would either either think they were drunk or crazy. Right? We're going to see that in chapter 14. Just as they had made a mockery of the Lord's Supper with their carnality, so they were perverting the use of the spiritual gifts. And Paul's instructions here serve as a corrective. Paul is writing all of this to straighten them out on how the spiritual gifts are to be employed in the church. He's writing to deal with the abusers of the gifts. So let's move now into the text. This has been a very long introduction, but let's see what Paul has to say here about spiritual gifts. The first thing he deals with in verses 1 through 3 is the importance of spiritual gifts, the importance of spiritual gifts. Look with me at verse 1 again. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Paul is saying, I don't want you to be ignorant on this important subject. I want you to understand it clearly. Why? Because the church cannot function 
without the proper operation of the spiritual gifts. In addition to that, there is much potential deception as Satan is seeking to counterfeit God's genuine gifts. So believers cannot afford to be ignorant about these things. We'd better have a good, solid, biblical understanding of what the gifts are and how God intends for them to be exercised in the church. But listen, we'd better not base our understanding of the gifts on experience. Because we can't always be certain that just because something happens, it is necessarily of God. Now, verse 1 is what we call an idiom. It is a Greek idiom for something that is super emphatic. Paul reserved phrases like this for those times when he wanted to say something very, very strongly. Why is it so important for us to understand spiritual gifts? Because the church cannot grow or function without them. And that's why Satan works so hard to counterfeit and pervert them. He wants to confuse people. He wants to cause chaos and even, at times, split the church. Counterfeiting the gifts is one way that he does this. Folks, there's a lot of ignorance today concerning spiritual gifts. This ignorance manifests itself in the abuse of the gifts, either by ignoring them, by neglecting them, by overemphasizing the wrong ones, or by confusing them with counterfeits. So Paul says that ignorance has got to stop. And the amazing thing about the Corinthian church is that they had all of the gifts. They were fully equipped to be Christ-like and to be all God wanted them to be. But instead, there was absolute chaos in their worship service. There was a failure on the part of the gifted men to mature the saints, to minister the gifts that they had been given. And instead, these gifts were being counterfeited, exploited, neglected, abused, and confused, resulting in terrible chaos that we're going to read about in chapter 14. So Paul writes chapters 12 through 14 to try to straighten them out and to deal with the urgent need for a proper understanding of the ministry of the gifts as spiritual endowments from God himself. Now look back at verse 1 at the phrase, spiritual gifts. This is the first of five terms that Paul uses in chapter 12 to describe his subject. The only word that actually appears in the Greek text is the word spiritual. The word gifts is implied, so it should be in italics in your Bible. That word is not actually in the text. The verse literally reads, Now concerning spirituals, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. In the Greek, the word spiritual means that which is characterized or controlled 
by the Spirit. And you can learn a lot about spiritual gifts by that one descriptive word. That tells us that all the spiritual gifts are to all be controlled by the Spirit. They are energized by the Spirit, and they're to operate under the control of the Spirit. Now, as I said, Paul, Paul's use of this word is one of five different terms that he uses to refer to these gifts. In verse 4, the word gifts is the Greek word charisma. It means that they are received by God's grace. You can't earn these gifts. They're all totally unmerited. They're totally given by God. In verse 5, he uses the word administrations. In the Greek, that is the word diakonia, which means to serve. Of course, we get the word deacon from that. But this indicates that the spiritual gifts are all to be employed in serving others. In verse 6, he uses the word operations, the Greek word energeo, which refers to energy, and this points to the fact that all the gifts are energized by the Spirit. So the gifts are controlled by the Spirit, given by the grace of God, used to serve others, and empowered by the Lord. Okay, we're through verse 1. Let's move on now to notice verse, verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Spirit. What is this saying? Well, first of all, the word pagans there is sometimes translated Gentiles in its technical sense, it means a non-Jew. It can also be translated pagan as it is here in the New American Standard or the word heathen. So in this usage, it would refer to anyone who does not know God. Say pagan. This is someone who does not know God, doesn't know the God of the Bible. The phrase led astray to Dumb idols or mute idols probably uh, should be more accurately translated carried away. It is in the passive voice. So this is a picture of a victim of a system of religion who has little or no choice regarding his involvement. He's being carried away by this deception. That phrase, carried away, is often used in the Bible to refer to a prisoner or a condemned person being led away against his will. In other words, this is saying that this is an ungodly man who is being led away and deceived by Satan to worship a non-god, a non-deity. The phrase, Mute idols probably points to the fact that they cannot speak, they cannot answer, respond, or give direction in any way. And unlike the true God, they cannot give revelation or say anything authoritarian. In fact, 
they can't say anything at all. And that, by the way, is the plight of religious man. He's being led away to a dumb deity that never knows the true freedom and true dignity of the true God. He's being deceived. The phrase, however you were led, probably uh, should be more accurately translated, even as you were led. And someone might ask, well, what does this have to do with spiritual gifts? Well, the connection comes with the phrase, even as you were led. The Greek verb, ago, implies being led away as a passive victim. Here, it implies being led away into sinfulness. And I think the application of verse 2 is something like this. You were victims being, you were being led away by demons to worship false gods, and you didn't even know it. You're being duped. You're being deceived. You're being led away by demons, by Satan. You see, Paul is warning them not to fall back into the same kind of deception in regard to spiritual gifts as they had experienced when they were blinded by Satan in their lost condition. The problem was that they could not distinguish what was from God and what was from Satan. They literally had confused the work of Satan as the work of the Spirit of God. How can you tell the difference? Well, Paul gives them a test here in verse 3. He says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now notice how far the Corinthians had been deceived. There had actually been some in the Corinthian assembly that had stood up and cursed Jesus under the guise of a so-called spiritual gift. The Corinthians had made the judgment of the value of the gift based on experience rather than content. If the experience was wild and bizarre and ecstatic and it appeared to be supernatural, they just assumed it was of the Holy Spirit. After all, it was happening in the church, right? But someone had apparently gone so far as to actually curse the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people could not even determine in this assembly that this was obviously not of the Holy Spirit. How could you ever say the Holy Spirit would lead someone to curse Jesus Christ? Folks, listen, don't ever believe that just because something happens and don't ever believe that just because something happens in the church that it must necessarily be of the Holy Spirit. My friend, Satan spends a lot of his time at church. I hope you understand that. And in addition to that, just because someone in the church is under the control of an outside force doesn't necessarily mean it's of God. It could be demons. It could be demonic. 
And I don't know if any of you have ever read the testimony of Johanna Michelson, but she thought all along that she was hearing the voice of God, but she came to realize she was listening to the voice of demons. This is frightening. The deception that is possible. So the doctrinal test is the first test of a genuine spiritual gift. The doctrinal test, that has to be number one. If anyone ministers a gift, the first question we should ask is, what does the person say about Jesus Christ? What do they say? Is the content coming from the use of this gift in conformity with what the Word of God says about him? And then beyond that, not only just what the person says about Jesus Christ, but is the content of this so-called message from God, does it conform with the teaching of Scripture? That is so critical. It really ought to go without saying. After all, anyone who would ever say that Jesus is a curse cannot be under the influence of of the Holy Spirit of God. That is one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to point people to the Lordship and the deity of Christ. So the first reason why we know these Corinthians were out of line here is because what they were saying did not line up with Scripture. The doctrinal test has to be number one. Well, I think this is a good place to stop for tonight. I just whetted your appetite for the rest of the study, and we'll carry on next week. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you again that uh, we have your sure word of prophecy, your sure word of testimony, and we can always count on it. We can live by it. We can build our lives upon it, and we thank you for it. Help us to be wise in the use of this and help us to be wise in the use of spiritual gifts in the church. In Jesus' name, amen.